0: Hey y'all. It's still Women's History Month, so we're still gonna focus on black women today. Specifically, following up on my episode about black feminism from last year, where we blew through like well over a hundred years of black feminism in one episode. Today we're gonna do something a little different. We're gonna pick up from around the time of the Voting Rights Act at a much shorter period of black feminism. We're gonna look at black feminist organizing from about nineteen sixty eight to nineteen eighty. My guest today is Professor Kimberly Springer from Barnard College, author of the book Living for the Revolution, Black Feminist Organizations, 1968 to 1980. So before we dive, well, the first thing I want to do is really just name the organizations we're talking about, because there are five your book focuses on. There's the Third World Women's Alliance, the National Black Feminist Organization, the National Alliance of Black Feminists, the Kamahi River Collective, and Black Women Organized for Action. So, what I found really fascinating right from the start is that these black feminist organizations that your book focuses on exist for a lot of the same reasons the black feminist organizations we talked about last year arose because no other organizations addressed their unique position in society. So I want to start with just where both black nationalism and the civil rights movement and the feminist movement failed black women.
1: The thing that I started with with my work on these Black feminist organizations is that I thought, why don't they exist anymore? And so I was thinking about success and failure in particular ways when I started the work. But by the end of this research, I was thinking about success and failure differently. So if we think about these women like having encounters with white feminists and being a part of the black student movement arm of the civil rights movement, or even just the mainstream civil rights movement, the movements did fail them in the sense that their identity fell between these gaps in thinking about black people's rights and women's rights. But there's some success because those movements taught them something about organizing and about how to think about black women's issues So they were always able to think like, what's missing here? Who are they not addressing? And how can these organizations rectify that? So I think, you know, it's a mixed bag when I think about success and failure, because they gained organizing skills, they figured out like, who in their community were the gatekeepers to getting particular kinds of resources. They also just did a lot of theorizing from their life experience that they might not have gained if they had stayed within those movements and not formed their own organizations or groups.
0: Yeah. Because actually, the orgs you talk about, most of them come from like directly from one movement or the other.
1: Right. And I think we tend to like to think of like spinoffs or groups as being derivative of other things, but instead they were doing a whole new thing. So for example, the I'm um, so you, you got all five organizations. Usually I forget one. <laughs> so I'm, always, I'm thinking about, you know, the abbreviations and all that stuff. But so for example, there was the Black Women's Liberation Committee, which came out of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was a group of young people, Black young people, encouraged by Ella Baker, who, you know, she's an elder. And she said, these kids have resources and something else happening that we need to help them harness as part of the civil rights movement. But then even as a part of NIC, you have people who were in that organization who were saying, well, actually women's rights and Black women's issues aren't being addressed here. So they formed the Black Women's Liberation Committee, which then eventually becomes the Third World Women's Alliance. So you can see even in the name There's just this broadening of how they're thinking about theory and organizing because they initially say, okay, Black women have these particular issues around race and around class and around gender. How can we bring those issues to the fore? How can we talk about things like, they didn't call it reproductive justice then, but that's how we might think about it now. Also, how can we think about childcare or issues that Black women have getting jobs And so through the process of that work, then they start to see where they're aligned with other women of color who have similar issues, but also different issues because they're coming from different contexts. So then they form the Third World Women's Alliance. So you kind of keep having this like domino. Is it a domino effect or more like a snowball effect where you just have like issues and experiences growing into a bigger thing? So I think you're, you're right to say that there's, a lineage there to be traced with these organizations. And another similar example would be the National Black Feminist Organization, which Margaret Sloan was a part of the National Organization for Women, which we think of. she, Margaret Sloan and Eileen Hernandez are two people who are part of NOW. And Margaret Sloan goes on to form the National Black Feminist Organization on the East Coast. And then that group had chapters around the United States. But then also, Eileen Hernandez was one of the first presidents of the National Organization for Women. So her involvement there sometimes gets erased, but it's important to recognize that she had these connections in the feminist movement already when she formed an organization on the West Coast called Black Women Organized for Action.
0: You just kind of brought up the way that Black women had very specific issues, specific to the intersections of race, gender, and class. So one of the problems with the organizations, the pre-existing organizations that served Black people or feminism was that both of them had assumptions about Black women that hurt their cause, hurt their image, and were part of the problems that they sought to address in forming their own organizations. One of them was something you call the mammy theory.
1: So in the first part of the book, I thought it was important to lay out this history of stereotypes that play into racism. So there's you know the mammy stereotype of Black women as, as nurturing and they're going to take care of everybody and Big Mama's got this. And it just precludes thinking at all about Black women's lives as they live them. You know, they might get a particular kind of joy and self-esteem out of taking care of people, but it's also rooted in, you know, this gone with the wind stereotype that all the Black women servants are just going to rip down the curtains and make Scarlet a dress and take care of everybody in that way. And so there's that stereotype. And then I also talk about, you know, the stereotype of the angry Black woman, the sapphire who's, she'll tell you off in a second and quick to fly off the handle, all of that gets put into this basket of like the strong Black woman. And so this idea that you can just like lay all your burdens down at the Black woman's feet and she'll take care of everything.
0: And there was this idea that like you could throw all your troubles at Black women, but also they weren't seen as leadership in these organizations. There was another like problem where whatever they tried to stand up for specifically themselves as Black women, they were cast as like anti-man. Mm -hmm.
1: Exactly. One of the quotes that I I really like from the interviews that I did with Black feminists, I think it was Margaret Sloan. It's been a while now since I did these interviews. But she talked about how there would be an organizing meeting in SNCC or one of the other organizations or with Black men. And all the women would be like in the kitchen, like making the food. And she talked about like, just making lemonade, just stirring, just stirring the lemonade. (laughs) and the black men in the other room doing the strategizing. And I don't think it was necessarily as stark as that. You know, there could have been like one or two like black women who were in on the strategizing as well, who maybe refused to do that kind of nurturing work, but she was using that as an example to talk about this gendered division of labor within civil rights movements. And then also as you note, this unrecognized grassroots leadership and organizing. So thinking at the time about leadership as being being out front, making speeches, being at the head of the march. But somebody's got to put all of that together. Somebody's got to like, figure out who's going to be there, figure out the itinerary, figure out logistics. And so a lot of this stuff might have been happening across gender. But then there's also this gender division of labor that's happening. And so there were Black feminists who were resisting that gender division of labor, and saying like, we need to have everybody working on these tasks, not just as a matter of like equity, because nobody was getting paid, but they had a vision of what freedom looks like. And it didn't necessarily involve sexism as a part of that vision of freedom. So there was that kind of, I think, reaction to stereotypes about like what black women were going to do for you and what they could do for the movement that was limiting and that they were trying to break out of.
0: That makes sense that they were confined to a specific role, but they had a vision of revolution. So they had to break out of it. Mm-hmm,
1: right. And as you point out, like leadership looked a certain way and leadership needed to look differently for any movement to survive.
0: Yeah. Your section in the book about leadership is so interesting. You just pointed out the way that Black women weren't usually in the front when it came to civil rights and Black liberation up to this point. And that's a lot of how many of the organizations in your book tried to form leadership. They had what you called collective leadership, which, yeah, I definitely want to leave it to you to describe. But a lot of it was about making sure that there wasn't a star in front, but giving people more equity and power.
1: Right. One of my favorite examples of that is, Black Women Organized for Action. So the group that was on the West Coast and their organizational structure, they called it like a rotating leadership structure. And they had a tagline. It was Black Women Organized for Action, sharing the power, sharing the glory. So right up front, they're like, everybody's going to be involved. And if you want a part of this, you can be. And so their rotating leadership structure was They divided the calendar into quarters, and then they would have three people who were basically in charge of coordinating and organizing the group for that quarter. And because they had a mission statement, they had a collective idea of the issues that they wanted to work on. Those three people who were in charge kind of determined the course of the organization for those three months. And so it didn't necessarily mean that you came into that rotating leadership structure knowing exactly what to do, but you had the support of not only two other people rotating in with you, but also the rest of the group to draw on them as resources as well. And I think they also, from talking to them, like they had very successful actions, but they also had actions that didn't go so well. And so they could evaluate like what didn't work and share that knowledge, as opposed to putting all this pressure, too, on like one person. We have more of an awareness about burnout today, but when I interviewed the women for this book, they talked about burnout as a factor for why the groups didn't survive. And so I think like that rotating leadership structure was one way to try to mitigate the kind of like psychological and physical and emotional burnout that comes with organizing
0: that allowed for a lot of different people to just like develop leadership skills. And there's a really funny part of your book where you talk about one of your interviews, it was like, wait, so we're just going to let anyone lead. And the other person was like, oh, how much damage can they do in three months?
1: (laughs) Oh, because of history, we know how much damage somebody can do in three months, but yeah, they thought it was worth the risk to do that, to share the power and the glory.
0: And a big thing that you emphasize in the book is that Black feminism and just Black women's struggle is not homogenous. Allowing different people into leadership allowed people to bring to the front the issues that mattered most to them.
1: Exactly. People were coming from different like educational and occupational backgrounds. So some of them were involved in arts and culture, some of them were social workers. So that's going to bring all different kinds of vantage points too to how you approach an issue. So a couple of the organizations did a lot of work around like sort of health screening clinics around sickle cell anemia, which disproportionately affects black people. But they could have not only a health approach to that, but also a psychological approach to that, to think about like your well-being. So in the academy, we, we might call that like interdisciplinarity, but that's what was working on the ground for people to bring different knowledges to the organizing they were doing.
0: So there were a lot of like these collective organizations, but there were some, especially the ones that came out of the civil rights movement and tried to be national organizations that did look more traditionally hierarch- hierarchical, that had a more traditional hierarchy. Well,
1: I was trying to think. Back to the research, I mean, the National Black Feminist Organization, that's that's a funny one because when that organization started, there had been like a group of Black women who met in somebody's apartment in New York and said, oh, we should start this organization. And so they came up with a press release pre-internet and sent this out. And their press release that they were announcing this organization got picked up by the New York Times. And I think they got something like two to 300 phone calls on a landline the next day from women across the country saying, oh, where's my chapter? I was like, ooh, okay, organizing tip, actually get your group together before you (laughs) have an announcement that ends up in a national newspaper. But so they had the kind of like organization of president, treasurer, vice president, et cetera. And so I think that part of the organizational structure depended on what you were trying to do. So if you're trying to influence national policy, then yeah, you might lean towards a more traditional structure and knowing like, who do you need to direct the press to if you have an initiative or something going on that you're trying to organize. But I think that too was a part of why, I wouldn't say that organization failed, But I think that their reach wasn't as far and people didn't know about them as much because they were trying to organize on a bigger scale than the other organizations organizing locally. So you could think to a degree in contemporary terms about like mutual aid groups that are working locally within their communities versus Black Lives Matter writ large. And the way that that operates on a local scale, but also on a national scale. And you can just see, if you think about like the issues they try to tackle, I think our system requires a particular kind of organizational apparatus that works or doesn't work at different scales. And so that's why I looked at a range of Black feminist organizations
0: Oh yeah, that makes sense. I did notice in reading that you have these like big orgs that were trying to cover the nation and then you had the local ones and it's just a very different fight at the local level than at the national level.
1: And it's hard, I think it's hard for us. I call it having kind of a presentist mindset. It's hard for us to get out of our current way of thinking about how things work and think back to that time. So there wasn't, you know, internet. There were ways that people thought that traditional politics worked like you had to have petitions and it was about voting. And we have some of this today, but then you have something like, this is a good example, black women organized for action. They had, I don't even know if I'd call it an initiative, but the show, are you familiar with the show? Good times. Yep. Okay. I know we have a generational gap. I heard they're trying to do like an animated version of good times. and We don't need that. No, we, don't. we don't need that. <laughs> no Nobody. That. Exactly. Nobody asked for that. But at the time, the show Good Times, when it came out, Florida Evans, you know, the mom of the house, she, this is a poor Black family in Chicago, and the mother of the house didn't have a job. She was a housewife. And I don't know if they ever used the word housewife, but it was also clear that it wasn't that she was there in her home by choice, taking care of her family. And so, Black women organized for action. The group on the West Coast were like, "This is unrealistic. How is this family going to have, you know, one so-called breadwinner, the patriarch of the house, and not have Florida or any of the kids having a job to try to supplement the family's income?" So they wrote to Norman Lear, the producer of the show. You know he produced all those shows like "Good Times, All in the Family." And they wrote him a letter and they were like, this is unrealistic for a Black family and in the circumstance that you're putting them in. And eventually, like I haven't been able to find notes about the meeting, but they had a meeting with him. So he responded to them. And eventually we have changes in Florida's role. So there are a couple sort of pivotal episodes of Good Times where Walona takes her neighbor, you know, her friend, takes her to a Women's Live movement. And so they acted out on screen these fraught issues around Black women feeling both racism and sexism and not being heard. So you know, that's an example of a kind of like local activism and local group that had a national impact, which is very different than how we might think today about how a group goes about protesting representation on TV.
0: That's really cool that they have such a tangible impact that normally are hurt. Yeah,
1: time. yeah, exactly. Because how do we do that today? We sort of take like a capitalist mindset and we think, oh, we're going to get in their pocket and we're going to disrupt their advertising. And it's like, well, does anybody actually approach these producers and writers' rooms and say like, your show could be better? if it were more accurate, and instead we'll, you know, we'll get on Twitter and drag them, (laughs) which is, which is not, is not as effective as what black women organized for action did.
0: So one of the questions that these organizations had to ask themselves as they were recruiting and building was who is a black woman? That was like an Mm -hmm. interesting thing. I'd never really thought of in defining black feminism. You really have to kind of decide who you include as Black women, that was like a question each organization had to ask themselves.
1: It's so complicated because people just kind of, I hate to use the word naturally, but we form these in groups and out groups. And you can see it just in any setting. Like if people are, say, at a store and the line is really long, somebody in the line will start grumbling and try to like get people on their side against the side of the people who work there. So just like, there's just a basic in-group, out-group thing that happens. But with the ways that identity is constructed, particularly in the U.S., there's race, gender, class, like all of these other ways of thinking about it. And so definitely these Black women's organizations, after they figured out, oh, our issues and the way we want to approach them are different from white women and Black men, even within their Groups, they had to figure out, like, if tensions arose, where are these tensions coming from? And some of that is because there were differences of sexual orientation, there were differences of class. I'd asked the black feminists I interviewed about tensions within their group. Basically, I was like, what's the tea? Like, tell me, (laughs) tell tell me what's happening here. What, What were the conflicts? And interestingly, there was a panel last week or the week before. And there were other women from the Third World Women's Alliance on the call. And the moderator, who's younger, she's younger than I am, and she was asking about tensions in the group. And a lot of them were like, I I just can't remember any. So they had kind of, through the mists of history, erased any kind of conflicts that might have arisen there. But when I interviewed women who were active in the Combahee River Collective, which is you know, the one Black feminist organization that people tend to know about because of their revolutionary statement. One thing that came up was, you know, it was a mostly Black feminist, lesbian, socialist group. And you would think, okay, you've broken down Black women's identity into even more granular categories. But one difference that seemed to emerge, one woman mentioned that a lot of the other women in the group were they were writers, you know, they're creative writers, they were essayists, some of them were pursuing PhDs. And so there came to be a kind of fissure within the group between women who were pursuing higher education and women who weren't, because it was a collective, but they're writing a lot of stuff. And it's not that women who aren't pursuing higher education can't write, it's just that there's a different way of sort of writing and expressing the group's views that took over and that became predominant, even though they were doing like other kinds of organizing. So there's those kinds of finer differences amongst black women that emerge. And so the groups then had to figure out like, how do we organize in spite of these differences, or even just recognizing the value of all of these differences within black women's groups.
0: In my like, taking notes, I wrote, there was kind of a separation in the group between those fighting for survival versus thriving.
1: Mm -hmm. I could think of it too as a different kind of idea about what it means to aspire to something different. Or what does freedom look like for different kinds of people, depending on what you aspire to and the resources you have? How can that collectively benefit Black women?
0: That is the question they were asking. And I
1: think that's a useful one to just to keep in mind. Like, I'm glad you brought that up about the heterogeneity amongst Black women, because I think there's still a temptation to sort of flatten or group us all together in ways that don't necessarily benefit us. So I I come back to, I guess it's kind of dated now, but the idea of like Black girl magic kind of gets on my nerves (laughs) because I'm like, sometimes I don't feel like magic. I don't feel like working magic. I don't feel like I am magic. I just need time to like recuperate or figure out like what is it that I'm doing? And if I set boundaries in particular ways, then I come across as like the mean black woman or the angry black woman. So, you know, we still deal with a lot of those different stereotypes, but I think through like looking at these black feminist organizations, we can realize one, our struggles are not new. They just have taken on a different form, but then also like, what are the tools that we were left with that can help us actually think about liberation and freedom in different kinds of ways and in ways that are unique and useful to our context? Like we contain multitudes. So let us be complex and flawed, but also fabulous and aspirational and all of those things.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Now, I want to talk about just like on the ground, the kind of day-to-day things that these organizations were doing. And you spent a lot of time talking about consciousness raising and how the collective of Black feminist identity was something that had to be built. Black women had to be convinced that feminism was something that was useful beyond just white women. And I guess I just want to talk about what what did consciousness raising look like?
1: It's interesting because consciousness raising was, I think, we associate it with white feminist groups and the idea that the personal is political. The meaning of that being, how do we move from thinking about our personal struggles as not simply happening to us and individual failures or success, but also how is the group and how are structures implicated in that? And so as consciousness raising was associated with white women and also with women generally, there's the accusation, oh, that it's, you know, they're just like sitting around talking about themselves, they're navel gazing. I don't even know where that comes from. Like the idea that you're like sitting around looking at your navel, whatever. Uh, (laughs) But there's more to consciousness raising than that. And it was happening across different movements. So it was happening in the civil rights movement where people were saying, you know, I've experienced this racism, and if all of us have experienced this particular kind of racism or racist slight, it can't just be us. What are the structures that are impacting, like, you know, how is segregation something that's by law in particular communities? How is that political? And so Black feminists were using consciousness-raising amongst themselves in a similar kind of model to white feminists. But let me think, the national the National Alliance of Black Feminists, in their like records and agendas, they had a lot of different meetings where it was black women only, but then they'd also had meetings with black men to do consciousness raising. So to talk about like they talked in the 70s about the battle of the sexes a lot. What does that actually mean? So what are the interpersonal differences that Black women were experiencing at home? And some of them, you know, would, women would talk about just domestic issues, like who ends up working a full-time job, but also has to come home and like is expected to like cook and clean and have dinner on the table, all of those things. But then also there were issues of like domestic violence. So talking with Black men about why is it that Black men could be out in the work world and experiencing racism from their white boss, but then come home and take it out on Black women and children. So that kind of consciousness raising was happening. Instead of just thinking like people were just sitting around griping, they were like needing to air these grievances in order to then name them and think about what are the solutions to this? Not only just like we need to be kinder to one another, but also pinpointing where the actual stress was coming from and how external forces were contributing to that. But I think the downside to that with, for example, the National Alliance of Black Feminists, when I interviewed women there, they would talk about kind of constantly being under siege and constantly having to defend themselves as Black feminists and defend themselves for wanting to work on Black women's issues because there was the stereotype about that being separatist or exclusionary. And so they perhaps spent a disproportionate amount of time defending themselves instead of working on the issues they wanted to work on that would benefit the entire community. So I think that's the tricky part about consciousness raising.
0: That is something that comes up a lot, the way that they had to constantly defend themselves.
1: Yeah, like the National Alliance of Black Feminists would have public events, and you know the event could not even be about the organization or its mission or like why they do what they do. They could just you know be having a speaker who's there to talk about like black women in the workplace. But then you'd have people in the audience. We might think about them as like hecklers today who are questioning their very existence or their right to exist as a group. And just think about like how tiring that could be. It would be like having, you know, if you go like hear something like a talk or something, or you're just listening to listening to a podcast and there's time for question and answers and somebody be like, I have more of a comment than a question. Here you go. We're here for this thing and you're trying to make us do this thing. So there was kind of always that pull and that distraction of having to defend themselves.
0: Yeah. They had to constantly defend themselves, which actually was sometimes a deterrent for women to join these organizations. There's a section where you talk about the Eastern Regional Conference, which was, that was a huge deal. I feel like we should just talk about that in general. But also one of the big things about that was that for all of the women that this conference drew, a lot of women didn't come because of all of the assumptions about black feminism being selfish and separatist. Some of them didn't even go. Right. And there's,
1: you know, there are black women who were skeptical of feminism and that could have been based on encounters they had had with white feminists, but also just the representation of black feminists. Like one of my favorite images from the time, because it's, I think it's so telling is there was a magazine, I think it was called Encore. I could be wrong, but they had, it was a report back on the Eastern Regional Conference And then NBFO, the National Black Feminist Organization. And so there's a Black woman and she's wearing, you know, kind of like this African print dress. And she's got like this gorgeous Afro and olive oil from the olive oil and Popeye cartoons is dressed up like Popeye. And so she's got, you know, muscles and she's got the sailor cap on. So it's a white woman offering this Black woman a can of spinach. And I called it like feminist spinach. And the Black woman is kind of saying like, no, I do not want that feminist spinach. And I was like, okay, this captures so much about how people stereotyped feminism as women wanting to be men, and then Black women should be rejecting that, as opposed to actually... Listening to the Black women who were making these claims, not only to like Black nationalism or to civil rights, but also to feminism. So, you know, back to the point that you were making about the Eastern Regional Conference, it was also like a space where they were trying to say, like, what is Black feminism? What is our agenda? And trying to figure out how to incorporate all these different ideas, but then also, you know, women who were there who were probably ambivalent about the space just based on the racism they might have experienced from the women's movement. Like, how can this work for us?
0: Yeah, you talk about that conference is probably one of the largest gatherings of Black women talking about feminism.
1: Yeah, because, you know, the Combahee River Collective took a completely different tact to it, you know, as a smaller group, but they had these Black women's retreats, and they were smaller retreats to gather to talk about different issues. So if we think about Audre Lorde, when we think about Black feminism, But Audre Lorde, you know, the poet, writer, warrior, feminist, she came to a few of those retreats, but she's not typically thought of as a member of the Kabahi River Collective. But so still, there's, you know, different ways that people were engaging with Black feminism without necessarily being a part of a national organization, but there were people like Margaret Sloan and Eileen Hernandez who thought we need a national organization if we want to get done what we want to get done. And they're, you know, thinking about the Black Women's Club movement of the 19th century, which was, you know, very effective, both locally and nationally on behalf of Black women.
0: So you keep bringing up the question that started your research about why don't these organizations still exist? What happened that they all kind of have a firm stop around 1980?
1: You know, it's not, and I've been proven wrong, which I welcome that. Uh, So for example, the Third World Women's Alliance, in this new book that's out about them, there's traces of the organization into the 1980s. So they just weren't necessarily on the radar or producing like newsletters or like the archival things that one might find. There were people who went into different kinds of organizing, or they went into the academy and so they were still doing Black feminist work, but just not as a part of those organizations. So you could think about kind of the descendants and legacy in that way. But one of the groups, Black Women Organized for Action, their final newsletter, which they put out right after Ronald Reagan was elected, has on the back cover kind of like a caricature of ron and nancy reagan is kind of like the send-off and it kind of marks this different era of conservatism that's on the rise i took that to be like the group stops there but when i interviewed women who were part of black women organized for action they're like well no we kept you know we kept organizing we kept doing things we kept doing like community events we kept working on behalf of candidates well into the 1980s so the that 80s stop date was more about me doing my dissertation and being like, this has to stop somewhere. (laughs) But then also, I will periodically see articles about Black women whose names I recognize from those organizations still doing activism in their communities. So it kind of continues in that way. But I think maybe the question that we both have is about Black feminist organizations and why we don't see those today. And I think part of that is because of the heterogeneity amongst Black women that we talked about. So that they're doing organizing inside all different kinds of groups. So within continuing civil rights organizations or within the feminist movement or at the local level, at the national level. It's kind of tricky when you think about if the goal of these groups was to end racism, sexism, classism, homophobia, we still have those things. So maybe that was too big of a goal to think about. Cause we, you know, we can't anticipate the ways in which those forms of discrimination just kind of like transform themselves. So I think that it it involves them thinking about success and failure in different ways. And to my mind, they were quite successful because they have inspired a kind of legacy and continuity of activism. And we just kind of need to look for it in order to then value it and figure out like what lessons can we learn from it?
0: It does make sense. We've talked about how much just forming a Black feminist organization how much defense they had to play against people fighting for Black liberation, people fighting for women's rights, that it does make sense that in the end they might just kind of join back into other organizations, but bringing their Black feminist perspective.
1: What I'd like to think about with these organizations, or with any organization really, is we think about resources as material resources. So who has like money and office space? And just all these things that exclude thinking about the resources of time and your psychic resources, like how long can you keep going? (laughs) And, you know, people will talk about self-care now, but Black feminists of that era maybe didn't phrase it in that way, but they were thinking about like, my mental health might be taking a hit from doing this organizing. So maybe I need to do something else or take a break from it. So I think that there's a lot that we've gained from Black feminist organizing of that era that we don't necessarily recognize as coming from that era. And part of that, I think, is just because we still have a lot of the persistent problems. And so instead of thinking about, like, what's causing those problems and why are they so persistent, like capitalism, (laughs) instead we think about, you know, the organizations having failed in a particular way, which isn't necessarily a very thorough or holistic way of thinking about it.
0: Legacy. I do want to talk about the legacy of these organizations because, yeah, we see them as kind of short-lived, but you keep talking about how much they've contributed to right now. And so, yeah, let's talk about the legacy of these organizations.
1: The most obvious Legacy we see is like the Combahee River Collective statement that people still read that statement and talk about that statement and write about that organization or about that collective. But I think that we should also take into account that these Black women who are part of these organizations mentored other Black women and they had children who were activists and organizers and they mentored young people. I feel mentored by them having just done this work. And part of why I did the book was because when I was taking Black women's history classes, African-American history, sociology, women's studies classes, there might be like a vague mention of Kambahi or the National Black Feminist Organization, but there was nothing that said like, this was a very powerful formation of that era. And so I wanted to create the book that I didn't have as an undergrad. And even like intersectionality is sort of an outcome of the work and the thinking of Black feminist organizations. Suggests that we even think about how different identities come together and there's particular kinds of like oppression, but also power. That I think would not have happened without the work of Black feminist organizations saying like, we have multiple identities and here's how this is working or not working for us.
0: Yeah, I see it. They created the space that we inhabit today.
1: Yeah, but I don't think, you know, we're not gonna necessarily, and there's no reason why we shouldn't, we're not gonna necessarily have like statues or sort of all of these traditional ways we might think about like memorializing. Like there are a few documentaries about like black feminism and you'll see like one or two characters. And I say characters purposefully, because on Hulu, there's this show, Mrs. America, which I started to watch. And it's about a white feminist, Phyllis Schlafly. And then they have somebody playing Shirley Chisholm. I think they have somebody playing Margaret Sloan. And I'm like, wow, y'all just continue to just scratch the surface of what happened with these Black feminist organizations. But Do we necessarily need a dramatization or a documentary? I don't know. Maybe we do. Maybe that's something that somebody wants to do. But I think that just as we needed to recognize different ways of thinking about leadership, we need to think about different ways of thinking about success and legacy. And I think Black feminist organizations made material differences in people's lives that aren't necessarily like heralded or put up on a pedestal or given their flowers in a way that we might do that today.
0: Last question. I talked about how you talked about the legacy at the end of the book, but at the very, very end of the book, you talk about like lessons for modern organizing from these organizations. I want to hit that real quick. I think the biggest
1: lesson was that they use the word burnout, but They didn't really know like where it came from, or maybe they did know where it came from, but they didn't know like how to handle burnout, how to recuperate, how to maybe retreat, but still then come back to the organizing. And I think it just wasn't written down or talked about in the way that we do it today. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things that, like I teach a class on activism and now students, they'll talk about burnout and the drop of a hat and like, yeah, but what have you been doing? So <laughs> I think there was, there's, what, why are you so burnt out? And it's not, you know, they're probably doing something, but they know how to like recognize burnout and think about dealing with it. And I think that that's one of the biggest lessons I think that activists have taken on from that era. But at the same time, there was like government surveillance that they were dealing with. And we have some of that today with trying to, you know, identify Black Lives Matter as black identity extremists, that kind of thing. So I think there's still more lessons to be learned from talking to people who were active in that era.
0: Thank you so much for coming on my show.
1: You're welcome. I'm so you're you're part of this legacy, which is why I was so excited to talk to you today.
0: Thank you. I don't often spend a lot of time in modern history, but it is super important and full of valuable lessons. And as we think about success and failure, in the interest of this podcast's success, keep spreading the word. It's truly the best thing you can do, and I appreciate it so much. All power, all people, y'all.